1960s, God was bringing a powerful revival to Mozambique in eastern Africa. This revival by way of these countryside revival meetings. These meetings were being held illegally because they didn't to meet, but nevertheless they were meeting in towns and villages and the gospel was being preached and people from Mozambique were believing the gospel and coming to faith in Christ in incredible numbers. And all of this was taking place under the leadership of a man by the name of Mohanda Campos. Now, Mr. Campos was leading these revival meetings, and as he was doing this, he was, of course, risking his own safety. But as the revival meetings grew and grew and more people began attending these meetings and being changed by these meetings, the police, who had not given permission for them to meet, decided the time had come to start cracking down on this. So they began raiding these revival meetings and arresting people, taking them off to jail. Of course, Mr. Campos was one of the first to be arrested and put into jail. But the revival meetings continued even after his arrest, and they even continued to grow, and people were coming to faith in Christ. It was a true revival in Mozambique. Well, one night, the police, of course, raid yet another revival meeting, and they arrest a bunch of people, and they are taking them to the local Mozambique jail. And as you may uh, can imagine, the, the roads in Mozambique are not all that great. And so they were taking these prisoners to jail all in the back of a pickup truck, and they're driving along a little curvy, dirt, dark road in, in the backwoods of Mozambique. And the driver would later report that he came around a particular curve, and in the middle of the road, he sees a man standing wearing glowing white clothes. Now, this shocked him so much that he jerked the steering wheel over to one side, flipped the truck over, the truck rolled into the ditch, all the prisoners in the truck were thrown out of the truck, and the chief of police happened to be sitting in the passenger side of the truck. Now, the chief of police was partially thrown out of the vehicle, but not completely, so, so that when the truck landed on its side, it landed on the police chief, and he was trapped underneath the truck. And then is when something truly amazing happened. These newly arrested prisoners then gathered around the truck and lifted the truck off of the police chief, pulling him out to safety and saving his life. And that was truly amazing because living here in our country, it's hard to understand the, the sentiments that people have in third world countries toward the police. But in most third world countries, the police are not your friends. And most third world countries are deeply corrupt, deeply influenced by bribery, and they are not your friends, especially if you are common type people. And so to have ordinary Mozambique person help the police was unusual enough. But the fact that these newly arrested prisoners, instead of running away to safety, would help the police chief, that had a profound impact on the police chief. He spent a few days in the hospital after the accident, but the entire time as he laid there, he couldn't stop thinking about what made these people help me? He'd never heard of anything like that before. And the more he thought of it, the more curious he became. And so once he was released from the hospital, he visits the cell of Mr. Campos to ask him, why would your followers help me in that way? Of course, he hears the gospel, leaves, he's converted, he asks forgiveness, he's given forgiveness. And then he, he arranges for the release of Mr. Campos and all of his followers, all of the ones that have been arrested in these revival meetings. But then the police chief does something else. He writes a certificate of permission, allowing 
anyone to hold these revival meetings anywhere they wanted, anytime they wanted, anywhere in Mozambique. Now that's something that never would have happened outside of the followers of Christ being imprisoned. You see, God advanced His kingdom in ways that could not be advanced otherwise, and He does it through the suffering of His people. And we see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. We see this in the history of the church as well. When for unjust, they do it with faith. And the result is often that God will advance in ways that otherwise could not have happened. We see this in the story of Mr. Campos and the revival in Mozambique. We see this also in the story of Paul. We turn back this morning to Acts chapter 23. Paul is in Jerusalem and everything is going wrong. The wheels have come off of Paul's ministry because everything that could possibly go wrong has gone wrong since he returned to Jerusalem. Everybody told him not to go back, but he was compelled by the Spirit to return to Jerusalem. And upon returning to Jerusalem, he finds that everything has gone sour. Most of all, not only, not only are the Jews in Jerusalem upset at him and he now finds himself in the middle of a riot and beat up once again. Now he's in prison. He's almost flogged by the Roman tribune. But worst of all is that the church in Jerusalem appears to have turned on Paul. The church in Jerusalem appears to have, have grown hard to his message of gospel, the gospel of grace. And so Paul is at one of the lowest points in his missionary time. And he, here he sits in prison, languishing in prison in a Roman prison cell. The church in Jerusalem apparently has turned their backs upon him. His future is so uncertain, it may even be possible that Paul is beginning to second-guess what he has done. He may even begin to be thinking, maybe I should have listened. Maybe I should not have returned to Jerusalem. However, something happened last night in that Roman prison cell. If we look at verse 11, we see that Paul received a visitor, a very special visitor in his prison cell. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus visits Paul in his, in his prison cell. This is not a dream or a vision. Jesus actually appears here and comforts Paul, reassures Paul that all these things that are happening, though they appear to be going wrong, that is not the case because I'm using all these things to get you to Rome so that you can minister for the gospel in Rome in ways that you could not otherwise have done. And so Paul receives this visit from Jesus this night in the Roman prison cell. And the next morning is where we pick up the story for today. So we'll begin in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23. Beginning here in verse 12, we read that when it was day, or in other words, the following morning, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So they, they come together and they bind themselves with an oath, literally, they call a curse upon themselves. That's the same word that we see in places like Mark 14 when Peter, on the night of Jesus' arrest, and he's denying Jesus. Remember, he invokes a curse upon himself. And so this is the same word here. They invoke a curse upon themselves. They say, may we be cursed if we eat or drink before we have killed Paul. That's how serious they are about taking Paul's life. I mean, they're not just joking about this. They're saying it's either his life or ours. And we will not eat, we will not drink until we have killed this man, Paul. Another illustration for us of the deep-seated hatred for the gospel on the part of those who are invested 
in a salvation of works. The more heavily you are invested in a system of works, the more deeply, deeply seated your hatred for a gospel of grace will be. Because a gospel of grace undermines everything that your salvation by works is all about. So these people are heavily invested in the salvation of works, system of works under Judaism, and so they have this deep-seated hatred for Paul. <clears throat> and they themselves a curse. They say, may we be cursed if we eat or drink before we have killed this man Paul. And it's not just a few of them. Look at verse 13. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Quite a bunch of them there. I don't know if you've ever tried to get 40 people to agree on anything. You ever tried to get 40 people to commit to something? Not that easy to do. And here they commit not just to something, but to not eating or drinking. Try doing that. Try getting 40 people to commit to not eating or drinking and see how easy it is. That's how deeply seated the hatred for Paul and his gospel of grace are. So more than 40 of them take this oath. They won't eat. They won't drink until they have killed Paul. Now, who were these people who took this oath? Look up chapter 21, verse 38. See, they were. In chapter 21, remember, this is when the tribune first missed Paul for being somebody that he wasn't, thought that he was an Egyptian. He says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins? Now, in your translation, that word assassins is probably capitalized because it's speaking about a group of people. Assassins, zealots, they're sometimes called. Terrorists is what they are. Because, you know, terrorism wasn't invented with Al-Qaeda. Terrorism has been around a long, long time. And these men were terrorists. They may not have had pipe bombs and roadside bombs and, and uh, Molotov cocktails and those sorts of things, but they nonetheless used the tactics of terror against their enemy. And their enemies were anyone who was a friend to Rome. Their motto was, make yourself a friend of Rome and you'll find a knife in your back. And so that's what they did. They assassinated people who made themselves the friends of Rome. They, they went about advancing their cause by means of terrorism. They were zealots. They were assassins. Now, what's interesting to me is if we think back about 25 years before this, they were around then too. And we know some of them by name. Remember Simon the Zealot, who was one of Jesus' twelve? That tells us that he was probably among this group. Or Judas Iscariot. That word Iscariot means assassin. Those two men were probably among these terrorists. Jesus, you know, Jesus truly was a friend of sinners and He didn't just put it on. He truly was a friend of sinners inviting two known terrorists, known murderers in among His closest group of friends and allies. Jesus truly was a friend to sinners. So these assassins, these zealots, these terrorists, they take this oath Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we've got a plan. We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. And here's how we're going to do it, verse 15. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here's their plan. They're, they go to the Sanhedrin. They say, pretend that you want to interrogate Paul some more. Pretend questions for him. Some tribune, ask the tribune to bring Paul back so that you can question him some more. And when he's en route, we'll get him. On the busy streets of Jerusalem or, or in the hustle and bustle crowds of Jerusalem, 
somebody's going to slip up with a dagger, and they're going to put a dagger in Paul's side. And that's their plan. So they hatch this plan. This is how they're going to do it. Pretend that we've got more questions for them. And have come, and we will do this thing. We will take care of Paul in this way. Now, let's pause right here, and I want to just notice something about this passage. There are, I believe, Luke is showing us two very stark, very clear contrasts. Two very clear contrasts in this story. And the first one comes right here. These men have bounded together. They have taken an oath. They have called a curse upon themselves that they will die unless they are able to kill Paul. It's either Paul or us. We, we believe so deeply in this, we're ready to die for it. Now let me show you where the contrast comes. If you look up in chapter 21, you'll remember in chapter 21, when Paul was in Caesarea, look around verse, verse 13. Everybody's pleading with Paul. The prophet Agabus is prophesying about his arrest. Luke and everybody else is pleading, don't go to Jerusalem. And look at what Paul says in verse 13. Paul answered, stop it. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is in Jerusalem specifically because he is ready to die for Jesus Christ. He's ready to die for what he believes in. He's ready to die for his faith. Now we have 40 or more other people who are also ready to die for their faith. And I think that Luke wants us to see a contrast between the two. Two groups of people ready to die for what they believe in. Is there a difference between them? You know, we live in a world that's filled with people that are ready to die for what they believe in. You see it every single night as you turn on your television. You hear it every day as you turn on your radio and you listen to the news. Every single day we are faced with the reality that people hate us so deeply that they are willing to die for what they believe in. And in fact, many of them die every day. We live in a bloody world. And this world is covered with the blood of martyrs. People who have died for what they believe in. They are coming now even to our soil, even to our country, and they're dying here for what they believe in. So this is a reality, that people are willing to die for what they believe in. And so many of them, this is the case. You know that there are no statistics on Muslim martyrs. None. There is no organization that is willing to even venture a guess as to how many Muslim martyrs there are. It's just too many to count. There's no way to track them all because it's so many. Because Islam, of course, teaches that the one who dies for the sake of Islam will be granted an immediate paradise and all that sort of thing. So we live in a world that's covered by the blood of Muslim martyrs, but a world that's covered by the blood of Christian martyrs, don't we? You may think that this doesn't happen very much, but you know, a recent study, as recent as 2010, estimates that 160,000 Christians die every year because of their faith. 160,000 a year. Since Stephen, who was the first martyr, some estimated 50 million Christians have died for their faith. Indeed, live in a world that is with the blood of those who have died for what they believe in. And so the question for us this morning, this is a, an time in the text for us to ask this question. Is there a difference between the Media sources say they'll compare Christian martyrs to Muslim martyrs as if there's no difference. But don't be fooled. There could not be more difference between the two. You see, the Muslim dies for the purpose of hate. 
The Muslim dies in order to bring pain upon those whom he hates. The Muslim is willing to die often as long as that will bring pain upon those he hates. As long as it will bring about the destruction of... So willing to endure pain, but the greater cause is to bring pain to those who are his enemies. He dies for their destruction. The Christian martyr dies not for hate, but for love. The Christian dies not for the destruction of the one he dies for, but for the salvation of the one he dies for. The Christian who gives his life for the sake of Christ does so in the ultimate hope that his sacrifice will bring life to those who hate him and those who take his life. And the difference between those two could not be greater. The Scriptures teach us, among many other paradoxes, the Scriptures teach us how life comes from death. Beginning, of course, with Jesus. We're taught that life comes from the death of Jesus. In your sermon notes, I have 1 Peter chapter 2. Take a look at this one. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see how life comes from death. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And you see 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5 there as well. In other words, out of the death of Christ, life comes. As Christ gives His life for us, life comes out of His death. And the Christian is given the same call. Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And make no mistake, anyone who read the words of Jesus in the first or second century, they would have no trouble understanding what Jesus was talking about. When he talks about picking up a cross and bearing a cross, he's talking about an instrument of execution. In fact, an instrument of his execution. And so everyone who read that would have understood that Jesus is talking about dying for him. Everyone who follows Christ is called to die for Him. For some of us, that means a physical death. For all of us, it means a spiritual death. It means, as Paul will say in Galatians 2 or or Romans 5 and Romans 6, many other places, Paul will say the Christian is called to die to themselves. They're called to die to their sin to die to their ambitions. They're called to die to everything that is not Christ so that we may live for Him. And through our death, others may live also. Not because we die in the same way Christ died. Not because our death is substitutionary for anybody. But as Paul will say to the Colossians, he's filling up in his afflictions that which is lacking in Christ's In other words, people don't know that Christ has suffered for them. And as Paul comes and suffers for them in his place, they see the sacrifice of Christ in what Paul does for them. And they're moved in to know what Christ has done for them. And so out of Paul's suffering, out of Paul's death, comes life. And that's the same for all of us, folks. You may just be called to die physically for Christ. Probably not. But you are definitely called to die for Him in other ways. To die to everything that is not Christ. And as you die to whatever is in you that is not Christ, when others see that, that brings life. As Jesus will say in John 12, when He be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Himself. When people see the followers of Christ dying to everything that's not Christ, through that comes life. 
And so we see this ironic contrast between Paul and between these assassins in this passage, yet it could not be any more different between the two of them. They're both willing to die for what they believe in, but for completely different reasons. So they take this vow, uh, and they're very serious about this. By the way, just flip over to chapter 25. This is two years later now. Paul is in Caesarea. He's been in prison in Caesarea for two years. And this plot in chapter 23 doesn't work, of course. But look at what happens two years later. Verse 3, he's before uh, Festus now. And uh, Festus was, asking, was being asked a favor against Paul that he summoned Paul to Jerusalem, a favor to the Jews, because they were planning an ambush to, on the way. Two years later, they're still planning the same thing. Two years later, Paul hasn't even been in Jerusalem for two years. He's been in chains for two years, and they still hate him so much that they are still trying to concoct the same plan to kill him. You know, the hatred of the gospel by those who are invested in a system of works is deeper than you realize. It's evidenced here in their hatred towards Paul. But now we see verse 16. This plan of theirs probably would have happened had it not been for one thing. Verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Now where in the world did that come from? The son of Paul's sister. Who knew that Paul had a sister? Who knew that Paul had a family? He's never mentioned them. In all 13 of his letters, he never makes one mention of his earthly family. And I wonder why that is. He has a sister. Maybe he has more than one sister. Maybe he has brothers too. Obviously, he has parents. So why has Paul never mentioned his family? You know, I think the reason that Paul has never mentioned his family was because his family most likely completely rejected him after his conversion on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Paul is converted. He begins preaching the gospel to everybody he sees, including his earthly family. And I think they completely reject him. Why do I think that? I think that Paul's family was heavily invested in Judaism. Remember, in chapter 21, we're told that Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. That wasn't free. Paul's father forked out a bunch of shekels for Paul to be educated by Gamaliel. In other words, Paul's father was willing to invest a bunch of money into Paul's Pharisee education. And so I think that when Paul begins preaching the gospel to his earthly family, they reject him. They will have nothing to do with him after that. Like, I think that we read in Philippians 3, verse 8, when Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. I think the all things there includes his family. He suffered the loss of all things. And so therefore, his family has scorned him. His family has rejected him. But notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't scandalize them. He doesn't write in his letters, oh, my family rejected me because of Christ. No. He doesn't heap scandal upon them. In fact, if it wasn't for this, we wouldn't even know that Paul had a sister. But he does have a sister, and he has a nephew. And just by chance, if there were such a thing, the nephew hears of this. We all know such thing as coincidence. We all know Proverbs 16, verse 33 tells us that, that even in the rolling of the dice, God is in control of that. So we know there's no such thing as coincidence. So it's not a coincidence that this young man hears of this plot. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? A young man, later on, we're going we're gonna to read that the tribune takes him by the hand. So that leads us to believe that he's a young fellow. And how in the world did he learn about this plot, this secret plot, to take Paul's life by ambush. That had to be a God thing, I think. And so this amazing event happens in which God provides a way 
for someone to hear about this plot, this, this amazing circumstance takes place, which gives us opportunity to speak just a moment about circumstances, providence of God. Because once again, we see an illustration of the fact that God is in control of circumstances and God uses circumstances. You see, I think most Christians to think very unbiblically about circumstances. And I think that we, we will view circumstances like this. Tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong. We know that God is in control of circumstances, right? He's the God that controls all situations and circumstances. And so, because He controls circumstances, here's how we often pray to Him, God, change my circumstances. You can do it. You're the God that controls circumstances. So, change circumstances. When in reality, He's fully in control of those circumstances already. He seeks to change is not your circumstances. What He seeks to change is you. Just think of how often God will use circumstances that are not ideal at all. Circumstances that are painful. Circumstances that are negative. Not just to mention the story that we're looking at here, but all throughout Scripture we see God using negative circumstances for godly purposes. We could talk about the story of Ruth and Naomi of how God used negative circumstances to change people. We could talk about the story of David as he's fleeing from Saul, and we could see how God used circumstances to change people. But I think there's no better place that we could look than the story of Joseph. Think of the life of Joseph. Do you remember how many negative circumstances came into place in Joseph's life? Okay, there's a fact that he had 12 brothers or 11 brothers that hated him. There's the fact that there's this this colorful robe that comes along. He's daddy's special boy. And then this colorful robe just takes all the jealousy of his brothers and ratchets it up several notches. And then there's this whole being down in the well thing. And then there just happened to be these Midianite traders coming by on their way to Egypt. And Joseph just happens to get sold into slavery. You see all the circumstances? And he happens to end up in the household of Potiphar, a man whose wife has the hots for him. And can't control himself. And he does, though he does everything right, he ends up taking the blame for something he didn't do. He lands not just in prison, he lands in a political prison. And not just that, but he lands with two cellmates that aren't exactly good cellmates. All these circumstances, you see, they're just heaped upon Joseph's life. But does Joseph ever pray, God, change my circumstances? No. In fact, what we find at the at the end of that whole story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, instead of saying, God changed my circumstances, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, God was in control of these circumstances all along. And though you meant these circumstances for evil, though you meant this situation for evil, God used this for good. Because you see, you know what? If we were to follow the timeline of Paul's life, you know what he wrote just about two months before this? The letter to the Romans. Remember what he said to them in chapter 8, verse 28? I know, we know, that for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. Paul wrote that just a couple of months prior to this. You think he still believes it? You betcha he still believes it. And so he's not crying out to God, God, change my circumstances. He's crying out, God, change me. Is that your prayer? 
Is it your prayer that God would change your situation? Or is it your prayer that God would change you? Folks, I'm not trying to sound holier than thou. You know, you know, I'm transparent. You know, I don't have it all together. But I think if you could come and listen to my prayers, I find that today, I don't think I ever pray for God to change my circumstances. My prayer is always, God, change me. I'm fully aware that you're in control of those situations. You're in control of those circumstances. But what you're after is something in me. Show me what it is that you're after. Bring that in me. Not my circumstances. Because you know what? My circumstances won't spend eternity with God. I will. And so I'm the one that changed, not circumstances. And so we see that in the heart of Paul. We see the providence of God in this situation. This young nephew hears of this plot for this ambush. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take the tribune, for he has something to do. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring the young, this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Did you notice just how easily he gets an audience with the tribune? And is the chief commander of the Roman army in Jerusalem. And a young boy at the beckoning of Paul automatically gets an audience. Aren't you glad that Paul connected with the tribune back in chapter 1? Aren't you glad that he connected with them person to person? Because you know what? I think we're starting to see in the story that the tribune really has a soft place in his heart for Paul. He automatically will have an audience with this young boy. Who knows if any other young boy could have gone and spoken to the tribune like that. And furthermore, be believed. Look at what's going to happen. Verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand, so he's probably a young boy, took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune believed him right away. No questions asked. He dismissed him. He dismissed the young man, charging him, tell nobody that you've told me about these things. So the tribune automatically bought over the Jewish Sanhedrin. And you know why? I think it's because he's seen the character of two people. He's seen the character of the Sanhedrin, and he's seen the character of Paul. And that has made a change in him. We see this pattern in Paul's life, don't we? It seems like when he gets arrested... When he gets arrested, the people arresting him in charge of him think that he's some kind of criminal. And then it's not long after that before Paul won them over. And they're on his side now because of the character of Paul. You should see the same pattern in your life, by the way. You should see the same pattern in your life. Like Paul will say to Timothy, we are to be thought well of by outsiders. The tribune, I think it's possible even the tribune is starting to believe the gospel at this point. Because it's going to become clear to us that the tribune wants to save Paul. Look at verse 23. And so two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with seven horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So he's going to escape in the middle of the night. The third hour is 9 o'clock. This is Paul's second nighttime escape. And is anybody counting? How many times has the tribune saved Paul's life? Four times. This is now four times the tribune has saved Paul's life. And look at how he saves Paul's life this time. He gathered together at the spur of the moment 
470 Roman soldiers to go with Paul. Folks, that is way overkill, all right? One man does not need 470 soldiers to protect him. That's like bringing a tank to a fist fight. I think the tribune really, really cares for Paul. And I think the tribune really wants to make sure that Paul is okay. Because Paul is connected to him. He's seen the character of Paul. Perhaps he's a believer in the gospel now. And he's going to make sure that Paul gets out of town safely. He calls up 470 soldiers. Let's, let's just put this in perspective. In Jerusalem were stationed 1,000 Roman soldiers. He calls up nearly half of them to go with Paul in the middle of the night to Caesarea. I think, see, I think he wants to take care of Paul. And look what else he does. The next verse, verse 24, and provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to defeat. Paul doesn't even have to walk. 200 of the soldiers have to walk. Paul doesn't even have to walk. He's provided mounts. It's like, almost like he's leaving Jerusalem in a military parade, isn't it? And so provide mounts for him. And so Paul escapes by night. Verse 25, he's going to write this letter to the governor, Felix, explaining what's going on. So he wrote this letter to this effect. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias, that's where we learned his name, to his excellence, Governor Felix. Now we'll talk... Felix is going to play a big role in Paul's life for the next two years. So we'll talk more about Felix as we go. So he writes, so uh, to you, Felix, Excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. I'm going to come back to verse 27 and end right there. So hold on to that Roman citizen thing. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. That's a common theme we're going to see from this point on. Luke is going to have this theme that Paul is never charged with anything deserving of imprisonment or death. In other words, Paul has been arrested over trumped up charges, which fits in with the theme of Scripture, doesn't it? 2 Timothy, 2, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 tells us, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And folks, nowhere does the Scriptures tell us that that persecution will be based on truth, will be fair. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 11, blessed are you, this is in your sermon notes, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Folks, we just need to get over this desire that the criticism heaped upon us just be based in truth. It won't be. We just need to get over that. Oftentimes I hear Christians complaining that, that criticisms launched against them or attacks launched against them are just unfair, it's unreasonable, Christians are treated unreasonably in our culture. Get over it! Because the God of this world hates our Messiah and hates us too, and Jesus calls him, what? The father of lies. Guess what the father of lies is going to do when he wants to attack somebody? He's going to attack them with lies. And so, we see Paul here. Once again, this, the charges against him are lies, they're false, they're not fair. Yet Paul doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Verse 30, And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Antipatris was a military staging station that was on the border between Judea and Samaria. 
So it's about halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea, 35, 35 miles. So they go with all the soldiers for 35 miles. The ones who are walking go back to Jerusalem, and the ones who are riding horses go on with Paul to Caesarea, verse 32. And the ne- on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When he had come to Caesarea, he delivered the letter to the governor. They presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and he learned that he when your accusers arrived, and he commanded him to be praetorium. So uh, Felix, the governor, says, where are you from? Learns he's from Cilicia. He says, okay, I'll give you a hearing, because he had to determine if Paul was from his jurisdiction, if he had jurisdiction over Paul. Like, like Jesus, you remember when Jesus, they sent Jesus to Herod to figure out if he had jurisdiction over Jesus? So Felix decides he does have jurisdiction. He says, I'll give you a hearing once your accusers show up. Now, here's where I want to end. I want to end by going back to verse 27, and I want to notice the second contrast that Luke shows for us, the second ironic contrast, and this contrast is between Paul and the tribune. Look at what the tribune writes to Felix in his letter. He says, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, he's speaking of when he rescued him from the mob, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, I rescued him from the mob. Is that how it happened? Uh Uh-uh. That ain't how it happened at all, was it? He rescued him from the mob while he thought he was an Egyptian terrorist. He didn't learn that he was a Roman citizen until he was about to have him illegally flogged and Paul told him later. Yet he writes to Felix saying, hey, knowing this guy was a Roman citizen, I rescued him from the mob. Didn't mention anything about the flogging that he almost did. You see what he's doing? He is attempting to gain the favor of of, of Felix. He's attempting to show himself in the best possible light. He's attempting to have Felix to think highly of him, to think that he has done his job well, that he's intelligent, he's wise, he's discerning, all these sorts of things, right? That's that's in the heart of, of the tribune right now. He wants Felix to think highly of him. Now, is there anything wrong with wanting to be thought well of? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be thought well of, is it? But just as we know, all good desires can become sinful desires if we want them too much. And and the trick at this point sinfully wants to be thought well of. So much so, he's made it sort of an idol for him. It's sort of like a god. His own reputation. He so worships his reputation that he's made an idol of it. Now, how do we know, how can we tell if a good desire has become a sinful desire? Real easy. A good has become a sinful desire, either A, you're willing to sin to get it, or B, you sin when you don't get it. That's real simple. If you're willing to sin to get it, it doesn't matter what it is, it's now sinful to you. And if you sin when you don't get it, again, it doesn't matter, it's now a sin to you. Look at what the tribune does. He sins in order to gain the good reputation, the, the good thoughts from Felix. He sins by lying. They say, well, he didn't just outright lie. He just sort of let Felix believe something that wasn't quite the whole story. Folks, that's the same thing. Knowingly allowing someone to believe something that's not true is the same thing as lying to them. 
You hear people talk about that sometimes. You know, well, uh, I'll just, just let them believe that. It's the same thing as lying. So the tribune sins in order to get this good, good reputation from Felix. Now, by comparison, let's compare that to Paul. Where's Paul now? Caesarea. When's the last time we heard about Caesarea? Chapter 21. Actually, that was just a few days ago. Just a few days ago when it was when he was in Caesarea. Now, what happened in Caesarea? That was the big falling out. Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Prophets, Agabus, the, the prophetesses, the, the daughters of Philip, everybody was saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Everybody was pleading with Paul. Even Luke, don't go to Jerusalem. Something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, a few days later, Paul shows up back in in chains. You think somebody said, I told you so? You think somebody thought, hey, Paul should have listened to us. This only took a few days. You think somebody thought that they were wiser than the Apostle Paul? Here's a better question. Do you think Paul cared? Do you think he cared what people thought of him? You bet you didn't. Because Paul, as we saw in chapter 1, or 21, runs the race of his life for an audience of one. The tribune runs the race of his life for an audience of who knows how many. One of them is Felix the governor. And so it's very important to the tribune what Felix the governor thinks of the tribune. Paul runs the race of his life for an audience of one. And it matters nothing to him what anyone thinks of him except Jesus Christ, his Lord. We all know the name Max Lucado. He's written a bunch of stuff. But frankly, the best thing Max Lucado writes are his children's books. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but one of his books is called You Are Special. And in this book, it's all about these people called Wemmicks. And the Wemmicks are little wooden people. And they live in this village of all wooden people. And all they do all day long is the same thing. Each Wemmick has a little box of stickers. And in that box, they've got gray dots and gold stars. And all they do all day long is take those stickers and stick them onto other Wemmicks. If you do something good, you get a gold star. If you say something silly, you get a a gray dot. You look good, you get a gold star. If you look goofy, you get a gray dot. All day long, that's what they do, putting stickers on each other. And some Wemmicks will have all gold stars, and so people will come and give them another gold star just because they have a lot of gold stars. Others will have all gray dots, and people come and give them gray dots just because they have so many gray dots. And in the story, there's a little Wemmick by the name of Punchinello. Punchinello is full of gray dots. He seems to put his foot in his mouth every time he opens it. He seems to trip and fall every time he tries to do something. He just gets a lot of gray dots. Eventually, he only feels comfortable around other Wemmicks who also have a lot of gray dots. Until one day, he meets a Wemmick named Lucia. And what's different about this Wemmick is she has no stickers at all, either stars or dots. And so he asked her, what, why don't you have any stickers? Well, people try to put them on me all the time, but they won't stick to me. They just fall off. 
They fall off. Why? Because I go to see Eli every day. Eli, who's that? He's our maker. He's up on the wood shop at the top of the hill. He wants to meet you. Go see him. So Punchinello goes up to the woodmaker's shop at the top of the hill, comes into this big, huge woodmaker's shop, and there's Eli sitting at the bench making more wimmicks. And after a bit of conversation, Punchinello gets around to asking Eli, Eli, why won't the sticker stick to Lucia? Because, Punchinello, she has figured out that the only thing that matters is what I think of her. It doesn't matter what others think of her. And because it doesn't matter, the stickers don't stick to her. Because you see, you see, the stickers only stick if they matter to you. Isn't that exactly the life of the Apostle Paul? He ran in the race of his life for an audience of one. Folks, how many people are you running the race of your life for? How many people are you struggling to get the approval of? And when you don't get it, it sends you into a depression. When you do get it, oh, then you're happy and joyful for a while until that changes. When you run the race of your life for an audience of one, there's only one approval that you seek. And here's the glorious second part to that story. The Scriptures teach us that in Christ Jesus, we have God's full, complete approval. There is no wavering. There is no taking it back. There's no waning and waxing. There's no growing and decreasing. In Christ Jesus, we have the full approval of God. And having the full approval of God, guess what? Now our joy and now our happiness is not based on what this person thinks about me or what that person thinks about me. It's only based on the righteousness of Christ. Like Paul will say in Philippians 4, He'll say to the Philippians, you know what? I've experienced a lot of circumstances. There's circumstances again. I've experienced a lot of circumstances. Good ones, bad ones, in between. I've experienced a lot of people. Good ones, bad ones, in between. Some of them liked me. Some of them didn't like me. Some of them were in between. But you know what? I have learned in all things to be content because I can do all things through Christ Jesus. It's only the approval of Christ Jesus that Paul needs. How many people do you need the approval of? Let me tell you something else. It doesn't matter how many it is. It could be one. You will never have it permanently. Even if you run the race of your life for the approval of one human being, you will never have that without fail. Only in Jesus Christ we have.